One, two, three, check, check, hello. Check, check, one, two, three, four, hello. All right, go ahead and grab a seat. We are going to dive in. Oh, I've missed being with you guys. Hey, hey let me, before, before we dive into Ephesians this morning, I just want to say thank you for giving my family and I a month to get to go on a road trip, 3,500 miles on the car. Uh, we didn't kill one another. We still love one another. Um, I didn't pick up any diseases from kissing a bison on the nose or anything like that, so we're good. Um, but it was wonderful to get away and make some memories with them, but the thing that makes me the most joyful over this last month was the way that ministry continued here at Lighthouse. And in fact, I would suggest that we leaned more heavily into our purpose as a church this last month than we have uh, in a lot of ways before that. Because our church's purpose is to make disciples who love God, love one another, and love their neighbor. And when you're making disciples, part of it is investing in people and walking with them, doing life together. But at times, you have to get out of the way to allow somebody else to step up into an area of discomfort for them to be able to grow. And we got to see that with two of our brothers in Gene Getz and Greg Barone, who got to teach here at the church for the first time. I was thrilled. I got to listen to their messages as Kathy and I and the boys were driving through the smoke-filled northern Pacific um, on the way back down here. And if the cars next to me ever looked into the car, all they saw me was with this big stupid grin on my face. Because I was so proud of my brothers. I was so grateful. And, and then there were tears in my eyes as I was listening to Gene's teaching, and that was powerful. But uh, that is the heart of our church, that, we would continue, that, that this would not just be a place where you come and sit in a seat and passively receive, but that this would be a place where you recognize you have a part to play, that God has uniquely designed you to be a minister in your own right. We're going to talk about that in a couple of months when we get to Ephesians 4. But you have a part to play in this. And our job as a church is to equip you to do what God has uniquely called you to do. And my hope, my prayer, is that we would continue to raise up my brothers and my sisters to give you a voice, to give you a place on the field. And so that's what that was about this month. Thank you for your support and your encouragement of them. I, I think we're going to do that some more in the future, that we will continue to prayerfully look for others that we can just call out and say, hey, come alongside of us. With that said, today we are beginning a series through the book of Ephesians, and I would suggest that Ephesians is about my favorite book in the Bible because it is so near and dear to my heart. And and over this last month, even though I wasn't teaching, I have just been sitting in this book, reading it over and over and over again. And it is, it is layered with theology. It is layered with powerful, very, very uh, important truth that we need to hear because it is utterly relevant to our lives today. Even though it may have been written some 2,000 years ago to believers living in kind of Asia Minor around the, the city of Ephesus, it speaks to men and women living in Orange County in 2018. And I can't wait to dive into it. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Ephesians. It's right towards the end of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seat back in front of you. And if you do not own a Bible, this is our gift to you. Please take it home with you. We have extras. 
If you've already taken three or four home, you, may, you are more welcome to bring some back. <laughs> but that's for you, okay? Um, so we're going to dive into the book of Ephesians. And, and here's the cool part about this letter. One of the reasons why I love it so much. Paul wrote a lot of letters to a lot of churches that he helped to plant. And in fact, he had spent two different trips into Ephesus on his second missionary journey we read about in Acts chapter 18. He was there for a very brief time, ministering to them, kind of sharing the good news, and then he moved on. And then in his third missionary journey, he came back around and he actually spent about two to three years in Ephesus. He, he would kind of pay his way there by making tents. That was his tent-making job. That's where we get that term. He would pay his way there, but then throughout his time there, he would go either into the synagogue or into people's homes or in the marketplace, and he would share the good news of Jesus Christ there. And slowly he began to build the church in and around Ephesus. And he was doing something that we like to call spiritual acupuncture. If anybody's ever been to acupuncture, they find the nerve kind of places and they stick a needle in there because they know that if you can hit right at the nerve centers, it will affect the nerves all throughout your body. And in the same way, from a spiritual standpoint, Paul would go into those spiritual nerve centers or those cultural nerve centers into the larger cities that had influence all over the territories. And he would spend time there investing because he knew that if you could plant a group of Christ followers who understood what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ there, that it would have radical impact throughout the region around him. And so that's what he was doing. That's why he spent two to three years of his life investing in people there. Uh, The book of Ephesians is unique, however, because in this letter, which is very different from just about every one of his other letters that he wrote to a church that he planted, this letter is not written to address some conflict within the church that's tearing it apart from the inside. This letter is not written to address some bit of theological heresy that people are teaching. He's not writing it to say, hey, these guys are, are misleading you and you need to avoid that. And because Paul doesn't need to spend his energy addressing something that is hurting the church. Instead, he can spend his energy explaining the wonder of what God has done for them and who they are in Christ. And so the book of Ephesians is a story about our identity. It's a conversation in which Paul begins to declare, here is who we are in Christ, and I want you to know this so you can rest in it and begin to live out of it. The first three chapters of of Ephesians focuses predominantly on who we are. The second three chapters of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, really focus on how we should live in light of that. And because this book is so theologically meaty, we're going to spend virtually the rest of the year slowly working through it and just chewing on the the nourishment that is in it. So we're going to dive into just the first 14 verses of Ephesians this morning. But before I do that, I have a question I need to ask you. Who do you think you are? And I mean that seriously. If you are introducing yourself to somebody for the first time, How do you define yourself? What criteria do you use to introduce yourself? Are you what you do? Is your job description what you use to define yourself? I'm a teacher. I'm I'm an attorney. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a student. 
Because if you find your identity in what you do, then what happens when you lose your job or when you retire? Do you lose your identity along with your paycheck? Maybe some of us in here identify ourselves based upon the relationships that we're in. Right? I'm dating this or that person. I'm a husband. I'm a wife. I'm a parent. I'm a child. I'm single. But what happens when your relationships begin to, to get rocky? What happens if, if that person that you've identified yourself, and far too many of us identify ourselves perhaps by our relationship with our father, what happens when your parent dies or one of your children dies? Do you lose your identity along with that relationship? Who are you? You Jesus asked a very similar question, similar in heart. When he was traveling around in his three years of ministry, he and his disciples got in a boat and they headed across the sea of Galilee to this place called the... uh, the Decapolis. It was 10 pagan cities in an area, kind of all together, on the opposite side of the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And his disciples and he headed across the lake, and when they got out of the boat and they started walking, they happened to moor their boat right at a cemetery. And as they were walking past the cemetery, this guttural cry rings out, and this man starts shambling out of one of the caves that was used as a tomb. He starts shambling out, and, and he is just covered in sores. He has cuts all over his body. Junior high girls were not the first to invent cutting because he was affected. He had so much pain and anguish in his body. There was just something he was trying to do to feel and have some control over his life. And his clothes reeked of death. And he comes shambling out and he comes straight up to Jesus and he falls on his knees in the dust of the ground and he looks right at Jesus with this feral look in his eyes and he says, Who? I know who you are, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Swear to God that you won't torture me. That's an unexpected um, greeting, isn't it? And, and, And I'm sure that the disciples at this point were probably taken aback by this man who was seemingly attacking their rabbi. I don't doubt that some of them kind of moved into a defensive posture and others were like backing up like, this guy's crazy. Jesus, interestingly enough, looks at the man and I'm so fascinated by the way that he responds because he doesn't, he doesn't attack him back. He doesn't meet him with energy like you might expect. Instead, with compassion in his eyes and in his voice, he asks a very unexpected question. What's your name? And what's even more unexpected is the way that the guy responds. Because he doesn't answer with the name that his parents gave him. He doesn't answer with maybe a nickname that he had gotten from his friends. Instead, he answers with his greatest woundedness. My name's Legion, he says, because there are so many demons inside of me. Now, I wonder how many of us in this room this morning can identify with that guy in in the graveyard. And I'm not talking about the demon possession part, okay? Don't start pointing fingers. But how many of us can identify with the guy that identified himself as Legion? Because we too, when we look at ourselves, identify ourselves 
Not by what we've done, not by our job title, not by our relationships, but by our greatest woundedness. And maybe those wounds are self-inflicted. Maybe those wounds have been inflicted upon us by others that we thought we could trust. And sometimes those wounds are things that are completely out of our control. I can't help but think of this young pastor from Chino that you might have heard about. A couple weeks ago, he took his own life because the depression and anxiety had grown so overwhelming that when he thought about himself and he thought about his life, he could not recognize the fact that he was a husband to a young wife or a father to three young children or even a pastor of a successful church. No, all he could see was the overwhelming blanket of depression that was, that was suffocating him. And it had grown so so overwhelming that he couldn't even see God's face in the midst of that. And so the only way out that he could see was to take his own life. How many of us go through life identifying ourselves by our wounds, by our mistakes, by the sins and the fingerprints, the bruises that have been left on our bodies by others or upon our hearts by people we thought we could trust? How many of us identify ourselves as addict, failure, adulterer, murderer, unlovable, alone. You fill in the blank. Far too many of us go through life like that. And so I ask you this morning, who do you think you are? Or perhaps a more important, certainly a more important question that we are going to actually spend a majority of our time discussing is this second question. Who are you really? Because we can think a lot of things about ourselves, but as G.I. Joe said, now you know and knowing is half the battle kind of thing. We want to know who we are. And for those of you who don't know who G.I. Joe is, I've just aged myself. Yes, I totally get it. (laughs) Although I was never allowed to play with G.I. Joe or watch He-Man because my parents were afraid that I was going to be too rough and tell them, I'm like, you gave me a Y chromosome. What do you expect? Right? So today we are going to begin a study of the book of Ephesians. And the reason that we're doing it is because Paul addresses that question of who are we in ways that no other book of the Bible does. He is more overtly focused on that question than just about any other letter, any other book of the Bible, and we are going to camp in it and begin to pull out the nourishment so that we can rest in who we are and begin to live out of that rather than looking to other broken people to tell us who we are. So that we can go through life not needing to find our identity in a relationship with someone else. Not needing to find our identity in a job not needing to find our identity in what we will do someday when we can just get off our butts and figure it out, when we can just get over this and do that. That's what I'm going to become. Or so that we don't need to find our identity in our woundedness. That's why we're studying the book of Ephesians. And as we begin, Paul, this is a letter that Paul is writing not to a specific church, as if there is a church that meets in Ephesus, but rather he's writing it to people who live in and around the region of Ephesus. 
in house churches that meet in people's homes. Probably the closest thing we can get to the early church is life groups. That's why we are so intentional about encouraging you to get in one because that's the best picture of the early church that we have. And that's what we want to experience because I have found that you will find greater life transformation from the life-on-life interaction with other people that you do life with in a life group than you will from any message that I'll be able to give up here. So I do challenge you, if you're not in a life group, please on your connection card indicate your desire to get in one and Jeff and I will make sure that we find a spot for you. And if there's not enough spots, and that would be a wonderful problem to have, we will create new groups specifically so that everybody who wants to be in one can. But Paul is writing to a a, a group of people who are believers in Ephesus. The vast majority of these people are Gentiles, which means they're non-Jewish. Paul would share the gospel message with Jews. Some of them would give their hearts to Jesus because they recognized he was their long-awaited Messiah, but far more of them would reject Jesus as their Messiah because he didn't look like what they were expecting their Messiah to be. They were expecting a conquering king. Jesus, he was a crucified carpenter, very different from their picture of what the Messiah should be. And so a lot of them rejected him. And and because of that, Paul would share the good news with Gentiles, whom up to that point, the Jews would say, the Messiah is only for the people of Israel. And Paul's like, oh no, he's not. He died for everyone. This is good news for all mankind. And and so I will go ahead and share that, and that's what he did. And so he's writing to them. And and as the kind of letter-writing format that was predominantly used in that day, Paul follows that. He does, normally, you would introduce who's writing, then you would introduce who your audience is. Thirdly, you would kind of greet them, and then you would follow it up with a, a, a kind of a, a blessing or a benediction, typically on the people you were writing to. That is the typical introduction for a letter, and Paul follows that exactly with a couple of ways that he mixes it up, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that term apostle is literally translated as sent one, somebody who is sent to represent someone else. We might use the term uh, an emissary, a representative. What are some other terms that we use? An ambassador, that's a, that's a fabulous term that he will use in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Ambassadors who represent their king. And he's saying, I, Paul, am an ambassador, a representative, an emissary of Jesus Christ. And I was called, by the way, I didn't choose this myself, trust me, I fought this. I was looking to destroy the early church. I was looking to arrest people who called on the name of Jesus Christ as false teachers. But then God got a hold of my heart and he totally turned me around and I recognized that the very one I was fighting against was the one who died to save my life. And so he, be, he went from being the greatest opponent of the gospel to being the most outspoken proponent of the gospel. And so he says, I am an, am an apostle, an ambassador of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he says who he's writing to, to God's holy people in Ephesus the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, 
we read that term holy ones. Some of your Bible translations, if you have a different one other than the NIV, some of your biblical translations will use the term saints. When I hear the word saint, I tend to have pictures of people like St. Patrick or Mother Teresa or even Billy Graham, you know, somebody whose life was so radically different and on a different echelon that they are set apart from the rest of the common Christ followers. These people did something in their life that set them apart. And that is absolutely not what Paul is talking about when he uses that term. I'll talk about why that is in a little bit. But the best definition I can give you for what a saint is, according to the way Paul is using it, is a saved sinner. Everybody who has faith in Jesus Christ, everybody who has given their hearts to Jesus and has invited Him to be their, not only their Savior, but their Lord, every single person who is in Christ is a saint, a saved sinner. That means that, guess what? You may not feel like it, but you are a saint. <laughs> We're in some heady, heady company today. I love it. So, to the saints who live in Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his typical introduction and welcome. Grace, which is only from God to you, and peace that flows from the grace and that the peace that comes both with our God and with one another. This was his typical welcome. And then after that, typically in a letter, in that day and age, you would go into some sort of a blessing to the people that you're writing to. Now, Paul follows that same format. He goes into a blessing right now. And what I'm about to read is his blessing, but I want you to notice that it is not focused on the people that he's writing to. It's not focused horizontally to the people around Ephesus, the believers. Instead, this praise is 100% vertical back to God. And, and what I'm about to read in the original Greek is all one long run-on sentence. For those of you who get marked down by your teachers because of run-on sentences, they just, I'm just following Paul's example, okay? <laughs> praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring all unity to all things in heaven on earth under Christ." In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Take a breath, Paul. 
my goodness. What we just read was not a theological treatise of Paul. He is not trying to lay out theology for them so much as he is simply trying to worship God. The, probably the closest thing that we have to what Paul just did are the songs that we just sang this morning. One of the things I noticed as we sang each of these songs, a lot of times worship songs focus on us. Here's what we're going to do. All four of the songs that we sang this morning were focused vertically. We were talking about who God is. You are beautiful. You are wonderful. You are good. You are faithful. They were all focused that way, and that's what Paul is doing. He is 100% praising God. Now, there is a lot there. It may have felt like you just drank from a theological water hose, and you're just like, I didn't get like even an eighth of that. I understand that. I've been spending a lot of time in this, and I didn't get about half of it just reading through it. It's overwhelming. What I want to do this morning is I want to I look at a couple of things that will help us get some handles for it, and next week we'll come back and we'll look at a couple of other things in this. So we're going to spend two weeks camped out in this song of praise that, that Paul sings here. Let's begin by looking at verse 3. He starts with this. This is his thesis of his entire praise. Praised be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, in our English translations, we miss something that's really important and interesting. And that is that in that one little phrase that I just read, maybe 10, 12 words, He uses the word eulogia, which we often translate either bless, blessing, or blessed. He uses it three times. He begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father. We translate it praise be, but it's blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Praise be to him. Blessed be God because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He then spends the rest of those 11 verses enumerating some of the blessings. He certainly is not an exhaustive list, but he begins to describe some of the blessings that we have experienced in and through Christ. He says he chose us. He predestined us for adoption. He redeemed us. He forgave us. He revealed his will to us. Again, he chose us and then he marked us with his Holy Spirit. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. However, there is one caveat that he throws in over and over and over again in this litany of blessings that he describes Something that he repeats so many times that if you notice it, you can't unnotice it. It becomes like, dude, you're repeating yourself. Like a valley girl says like, and most of us say um, right? Every time that we pray, we say, Lord this, Lord that. And he's just saying, this is his repetition. The term that he repeats over and over again is in Christ or in him. Eleven times in these first 14 verses, he uses that term. 
he will use that term in Christ or in him fully 36 times in the book of Ephesians. It is perhaps, I would actually say, it is the most important concept that we can possibly get in order to understand what Paul is saying throughout the rest of his letter. So we're going to spend this morning exploring what he means by being in Christ or in him. But before I do that, now that I've told you what to look for, let's read through these 14 verses again. And I will highlight for you the ways he uses it. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Now take a big breath. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, same use, in accordance with his pleasure and his will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit who has a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. In him, in Christ, in the one he loves. This is a tremendously important concept that we need to grapple with. What does he mean by that? What does it mean to be in Christ? Because I'll tell you, The irony when we start talking about being in Christ is that more often than not in the church, in the modern church, when we talk about our relationship with Jesus, we talk about getting Christ in us, don't we? When we encourage somebody to pray a prayer, it's Jesus, come into my heart and clean house. Which isn't bad. Theologically, we can make the argument, well, that's that's right, but... When we start talking about getting Jesus in us, here's what it does kind of on a subconscious level. It shrinks our Savior and our Lord down to the size of a pill that we can then swallow so that we can avoid going to hell and so that we can experience our best life now, so that all of our prayers can be answered, that he can protect us from discomfort and all that other stuff. When we talk about getting Jesus in us, we get to stay big. He gets small. We get to stay in control, and he really just helps augment our life so it can be better. But we're still in control. 
But when we start talking about being in Christ, it changes the entire thing. To use the words of John the Baptist, he must increase and we must decrease. In our minds, we don't want to, we don't want to tear ourselves down and go, oh, woe is me, I'm awful. But we need to recognize that Jesus is our Lord. He's God. He's in control. We are not in control. Therefore, he gets to call the shots. There's a, a commentator with the very unfortunate name of Kyle Snodgrass who, um, who wrote this kind of emphasizing the same thing. He says, if we emphasize only that Christ is in us, we define reality. And Christ is about one inch tall. Right there, right? He fits just in my heart. If we realize, however, that we are in Christ, he determines reality and encompasses all that we are. The book of Ephesians is about our identity. However, We can only find our identity, our God-given identity, when we are in Christ. When we try to find our identity in other things, be it our job, a relationship, what we're going to do, those of you who are in school, I'm going to be, you know, a Marine. I'm going to be an attorney. I'm going to be... Uh, yeah, I'm going to get my MBA and I'm going to be a businesswoman and I'm going to own my own business. Like, great, but that's not who you are. Because when we find our identity either in what we do or what we're going to do, then you can't ever slow down. You can't ever stop. If I find my identity in what a good teacher I am of the Bible, that means I'm only as good as my last sermon, which means I better not screw up. I, I better not use the word um more than three times. Otherwise, you're going to judge me, and I'm going to go down a notch in your opinion. And all of a sudden, I'm giving other people the right to define my value. And I have to be concerned what other people think about me. What an exhausting existence, because you can never slow down Never have an off day. Never have a hair out of place. You gain a pound. People are going to think less of you because there's more of you, right? <laughs> so Paul's point in the book of Ephesians, what I hope you get today, it is my, my primary point, is that this is a letter that talks about our identity, but we can only know and rest in our identity when we recognize that we are in Christ. And by the way, when you begin to understand that every single blessing, blessed be the God because He has showered us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, then you'll begin to understand that the blessings of who we are are only found in and through our relationship with Him. And it changes how we read certain things. So for instance... We talked earlier about the fact that Paul addresses this letter to the saints in and around Ephesus. Well, I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that the vast majority of us in this room do not feel like saints. Am I alone in this? I don't feel like a saint because I know what's in my heart. And if our sainthood is dependent upon what we've done, what we've thought, what we've accomplished, 
Remember, when I started talking about the people that I consider to be saints, St. Patrick, who was you know, enslaved for dozens of years, and then he escapes and he comes back because he feels called to the very people who are his slave owners. And he shares the gospel with them and he plants thousands of churches in Ireland. Now that's a saint. Why? Because of what he did. Mother Teresa, well, what do I know about her? She selflessly gave of herself and loved the least and the lost in Calcutta. There's a saint. Why? Because of what she did. Billy Graham, our modern-day saint, right? Why? Because that man preached the gospel day in and day out to the day he died, and he never stumbled once. Why is he a saint? Because of what he did. If we identify saints based upon what they did, then none of us deserves to be in that camp. Thankfully, our identity as saints is not derived by what we have done, but by what he has done for us. And we are considered saints in Paul's book because we are in Christ. Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see the mistakes we've made. He doesn't see our rebelliousness. He sees our faith in Jesus Christ and he sees Jesus. Therefore, we are declared to be saints. Or take the word, and this is the one that when we read through this, some of you probably latched onto it because it's, they're hot button words. He chose us. He predestined us. Those are words that carry tremendous spiritual theological weight. But we have a tendency to read them and hear them with 21st century ears. And and the 21st century, particularly here in Southern California, is a very individualistic age. We read things as it's saying this to me. I want my own personal relationship with Jesus. When you look at yourself, you even separate yourself slightly from your parents, your brothers and sisters. You are your own man or woman. And yes, you have relationships with people, but they help kind of support who you are. And, and a lot of times, the, the American mindset is that I am the center of my own little universe and everything else revolves around me. And even God fits somewhere in that. He's a big satellite, but he's still a satellite, and I'm still the center. So when we read this, he chose us, he predestined us, we read it as he chose me, he chose you, and he chose you, but he didn't choose that person, and he didn't choose that person. And suddenly we're making God out to be somebody who is arbitrary, in his distribution of grace. Some people go so far as to say, God sent Jesus to die only for the people that he arbitrarily picked, that he chose, that he predestined. Because Jesus would never die for somebody who would reject that gift of grace. So he could have only died for the elect. And I'm going, wait a minute. We are now painting our God with a paintbrush that makes him feel both very arbitrary but also conflicts with other passages such as uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. Can we throw that on the board for just a second? This is what Peter says in, in 2 Peter. He's talking to people who are waiting for Jesus to return. He says, listen, the Lord isn't slow in keeping his promise, 
as some understand slowness. He, it's not that he's not come back yet because he, he you know, got distracted and he's playing Fortnite or something. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Wait a minute. If I read that God chooses and predestines only some, then it would be contrary to his desire that nobody would perish and everybody come to repentance. So what are we missing here? Because I will admit, this is a concept. The idea of predestination is, a, is something I have wrestled with tremendously. I wrote my master's thesis on it because I had such a difficult time understanding it. But when we begin to read words like he chose us and he predestined us through the lens of the fact that we are in Christ, suddenly everything changes. It becomes so much more crystal clear. God created mankind to be his representatives, his image bearers, stewarding his creation. But he did not create us simply to be robots that did programming. He could have. He could have made us unable to deviate from exactly what he wanted at the cost of relationship. And God, in his desire for relationship, chose to give us free will because if you don't have free will, you can't have a genuine relationship. I could program my computer to say, hello, good morning, Eric, I love you every time I turn it on, but that wouldn't mean my computer loves me. It's just doing its programming. My sons, however, often choose not to love me. But it means, often choose, no, I don't want you, I want mommy, but that just means that when they daddy pick me up, Daddy, will you snuggle for a few more minutes with me? That means that much more because they have the ability to choose not to love me. So God created mankind in his image and he gave us free will, which gave us the ability to have a loving relationship with him, but it also means that much of the ills, much of the brokenness, much of the pain we experience in life has flowed directly out of that. But he allowed that to happen. And God knew that because he was going to endow his image bearers with free will, that we would, in many ways, reject him. We would fall away. We would go our own way. We would, that the, Adam and Eve would even take the fruit. He didn't have to put a tree in the garden that was off limits. He chose to. Free will. They had to have the ability to choose whether or not to trust God. And he knew that they would stumble. They knew, he knew that they would fall. And he knew that it would be humanly impossible for us to somehow, once we had fallen into the mire of our own selfish choices and our lack of trust, it would be impossible for us to get up, dust ourselves off, and, and make ourselves righteous again through our own efforts. And so God, before he ever spoke the world into existence, before he ever gathered up some dust and formed it into the image of our most ancient ancestor, Adam, before he ever breathed the breath of life into his lungs, God knew that he would have to take upon himself the penalty that we would earn for ourselves because of our disobedience. And so before he ever created the world or anybody in it, he chose to send Jesus his 
Son, part of the triune Godhead, to take on human flesh, to, to walk with us for a season, and ultimately to give his life, to die on a cross for us so that we could live with him. That's what he chose to do. That was his choosing. It was his choice. That was his predestination, his foreknowledge, was that I'm going to do this through Christ. And he being God probably knew, if he looked forward, who would choose to do that. But it was still our choice. And when we embrace the good news that Jesus died for us so that we can live, when we embrace the gift that he died on the cross to purchase for us, we become part of the chosen. We become part of the elect. Paul says virtually the same thing in verse 13, if you'll jump down there with me, in Ephesians 1. Paul says, you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, not when you were chosen, not when you were elected, when you believed. You were marked in him with a seal of ownership, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. When we talk about Jesus come into my heart, what we're really talking about is that God's Spirit the same spirit that was present in creation that was hovering over the surface of the deep. The same spirit that empowered so many of God's representatives throughout history to represent him. The same spirit that was present in Jesus who being God had emptied himself of his Godhood so he could be fully human. The Holy Spirit filled him and enabled him to do the miracles that he did and to heal It was the Holy Spirit's power in him and the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. That Holy Spirit is given to you and to me as a stamp of ownership. This one's mine. And is the first fruits of God's intimate connection with us. We'll go a little deeper into that next week. But I want you to see that when we talk about being in Christ and having Christ in us, that's what happens. We when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, find ourselves covered in the identity of Jesus Christ. We become sons and daughters of God in Him. And then God fills our hearts with His Holy Spirit to begin shaping and molding and and, and terraforming our heart to better reflect the heart of our Lord and Savior so that we can actually become more like Him, which is a lifelong process. Even Merv is still in process. Is this making sense? So we are lots of things. We're chosen. We're predestined to adoption. We are loved. We are forgiven. We are filled with the Spirit, but we are only those things. Our God-given identity can only be grasped in him in an abiding relationship with him now some of you are saying that's great theologically but i don't really get what that looks like what on earth does it mean to be in christ what does that look like on a day-to-day basis well jesus used a metaphor that i think is really helpful 
in, in John 15. He says, listen, guys, I'm the vine and you're a branch. And if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruits of the Spirit, that's the kind of stuff that will naturally be produced in your life if you remain or abide in me. But apart from me, you can do nothing. No fruit will be produced in your life. Many of us aren't vineologists. We don't understand vines and stuff, but you have seen plenty of trees even here in, in our landlocked Costa Mesa. So think of a tree. Jesus, to, to use the analogy, Jesus is like the roots and the trunk of the tree. And we are the branches that come off of it that bear foliage and fruit. And he says, if you stay connected to the trunk where the sap is, where the life is, where the empowerment is, then you will naturally begin to bear fruit. Not because of your own energies, not because of your own efforts, but because you are in me and I am in you. But if you're not, if you sever that branch from the tree, you may not notice it at first, but it will slowly begin to wither. No more fruit will be produced. Any fruit that has been on there will begin to look, instead of a grape, it'll start looking more like a raisin. And ultimately that branch will dry up to the point where it is a dead and dry twig. Jesus was not inviting us to simply pray a prayer of lip service. Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my life. Save me from hell. Give me a good life. Amen. And then we go on with our lives as if we are no different. The invitation was follow me. Do life with me. Lean on me. Learn from me. Be my disciple. By the way, we are not trying to make disciples here at Lighthouse of ourselves. Jeff and I don't need more Eric's and Jeff's running around. Diane Winicky doesn't need more Dianes running around. We are trying to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We are trying to learn from our Lord and be more like Him so that some will come to know Him as well. Our job is not to save anyone as if we had the power to do so. Our job is simply to point people to the only one who can. We will talk more about that in the coming weeks. But my point this morning is that you are not what you do. You are not what you've done. You are not what's been done to you, and you are not your woundedness. You are a son or daughter of God. You are a saint, not because you've earned it, but simply through faith in Him. And everything that we are, everything else that we will talk about in the coming weeks will only be found in Him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. But I'm thinking a lot about, well, how do we respond to this? Because it's one thing to go, okay, I, I, I get it. It's not, Jesus, come into me, be small, I want to stay big. Jesus, I want to be found in you. But how do I respond I think the best response for all of us this morning is to re-accept Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, but to do it maybe slightly differently than you ha- how you've done it in the past. Rather than saying, Jesus, come into my heart, let's do this. Let's invite him 
to be our Lord and ask Him to help us to come into Him and to ask Him to fill us again with His Holy Spirit as that stamp of ownership and as that, that enablement, that empowerment to become more like Him so that we will be a branch bearing fruit because of our connection to Him or to use an analogy that Paul will use in a couple of weeks when we get there, that we would be the body of Christ He's the head. We each have a part to play. Maybe we're fingers. Maybe we're hair follicles. Maybe we're elbows. Some of you guys are like, I don't know. You know, maybe I have no idea what even that is. Sorry. You know, (laughs) but you're something. All of us have a part to play. But But a body, no matter how big and beautiful if separated from its head, isn't beautiful, it's disgusting. It's dead. It's lifeless. We can only be the body of Christ corporately, not individually, corporately. We can only be the body of Christ if we are in Him and if He remains connected to us as the head, making the call. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads and I'm going to pray a prayer. And if what I'm praying is the echo of your heart, then I invite you to pray it with me. Father God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us even when we have rebelled against you. Jesus, thank you for being willing to take on human flesh. Walk with people who didn't get you and who ultimately killed you. Thank you for willingly dying for us. And thank you for being the Lord of our lives. We want to be part of the body of Christ. We want to be your children, Father. We want to be found in you, Jesus so that we won't be defined by what we do, but by what you have done. And we won't have to prove our worth to you. We're exhausted trying to prove our worth and our value. May we rest in you, find our worth in you, so that we can then live out of the freedom of who we are, not trying to earn who we want to be. So Father, have your way with us. Jesus, we invite you to be our Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would continue the process of changing our hearts to reflect the heart of our Father. And we invite you to use us as your ambassadors, as your sent ones, in our school, our workplace, in our homes, and wherever we go, would you be glorified in us? Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let's take a page out of Paul's book and let's worship our God for his goodness and mercy.